Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing all right. I feel like my anxiety is a little high <laughs> today yeah. and this week in general. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. I think I've mentioned maybe once on the show before that I do bodybuilding now. So um, that's just a thing that I do. And I'm in the middle of getting ready for my next competition. And so I feel like everything just feels a lot more intense than it really is for me right now. You know, I kind of feel like I have a lot on my plate and a lot going on. And so my anxiety is already kind of heightened just going into like this, you know, next story. Um, So yeah, so my family and I decided to get out of the house a little bit this weekend. It is Mother's Day weekend. So we um, took the boat out and, you know, just wanted to have a nice Saturday. It was, it was really nice, except that my dog, Lila, fell out of the boat while it was moving. (laughs) And we just talked about last week on the podcast, how water is just so terrifying to me. And all the time, you know, every time we take the boat out or go out near water, I'm always so scared that something is going to happen that day and something terrible. You know, I'm always convinced of it. Yeah, yeah. So she normally wears a little life jacket, but she didn't have it on because I was stupid and said she didn't need to wear it today. And she fell out of the boat. So that was really scary. We had to turn around. She was 
fighting for her life. She's never swam before, so that was kind of part of what made it so scary. But, oh, um, my gosh. Yeah, so she figured it out. <laughs> she figured out how to at least keep her head above water. But uh, my husband had to jump in, and then I had to, like, take over steering the boat, which is, like, not something I'm really comfortable with. And so, um, yeah, so it's been a whole it's been a whole Saturday for me. <laughs> Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. I, no. Mm-mm. Yeah. I remember my sister at her old house, they lived like on this property that had a lake and they were like, oh yeah, bring, you know, your son out there, blah, blah, blah. Bring him out there. He falls out and I have to get him out with one hand. Oh my, my gosh. left arm. <laughs> and everybody's screaming from shore. And I'm like psychotically saying, I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. Which is like something I learned in lifeguard training. Right. But like with my, <laughs> like that, I still have nightmares about that. Like I fully think I hope you sleep well tonight. <laughs> I mean that in the nicest way. It sounds like I'm threatening you, but like I hope you sleep well tonight because it is like it's just something that you'll replay in your head a bajillion times, but you'll never ever not have her wear it again. Yeah. Oh like, my gosh. Definitely. Yeah. For one second. I mean, and mm-hmm. it was actually wearing yeah, it in the car. Yeah. For real. It was scary. Um, and then of course when my husband jumped in, and by that point, like we had already gotten kind of far away, you know, from where she had fallen off, and so. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so I was like freaking out. You know, I could see her like trying, struggling, like out in the middle of the lake, you know, just out there swimming. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's our babies out there. And so, uh, yeah, so my husband ended up jumping in and swimming to her. And uh, she was, of course, terrified, panicking and tried to claw him to death and climb on top of him. Yeah, and she's not um, little. No. And uh, thankfully, my husband actually used to be a lifeguard on the beach years and years ago. He's Definitely not well-trained in that um, right now. But watching him swim back to the boat, I could tell that he was getting tired and the dog was tired. And it was terrifying, honestly. Like I said, I had every single anxiety that I ever have about water was like coming to fruition. We had, you know, I had my kids on the boat. My kids had a friend with them. So we had another kid on the boat. So I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay. So I'm happy that it's over. (laughs) (laughs) Again, hope you sleep well tonight. Yes, thank you for letting me get all of that out. So yeah, that was a little yeah. peek into my crazy brain and, and situations that definitely make me um, lose sleep at night, like you said. <laughs> oh, so sorry. Oh my gosh, Mandy. Okay, yeah, that like made my hand sweat and it's over and it's not currently happening. And, and everything's fine. Imagine. Yes, everyone's yeah, yeah, fine. Everything's the dog fine. is fine. Everybody's fine. So yeah, so all is well. But um, yeah, just a terrifying experience. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, do you want to get into this week's story, Mandy? I do. I do. Um, (laughs) On that note. Right. So the story this week touches on a topic that I personally find very, very interesting and kind of exciting because we're talking today about bounty hunters. Most people probably immediately just thought of the one and only bounty hunter that they know, which is... Dog the Bounty Hunter. Hunter. Yeah, of course. Uh, His real name, of course, is Dwayne Chapman, and he had a series on A&E that chronicled his experiences as a professional bounty hunter. So a bounty hunter is just a private citizen who helps the criminal justice system by pursuing and apprehending fugitives or suspects that have skipped bail or have failed to show up for court. In many of these cases, they get their assignments from bail bond agencies, and in return, the bounty hunter will get paid a set percentage of a bail bond's value, usually between 10 to 25%. I did not watch much of Dog the Bounty Hunter myself, to surprise no one. No. Uh, <laughs> so I can't really speak to what the quality of that show was like, but it did run for several seasons. And if you're someone who really enjoyed it, I actually have great news for you. A spinoff 
called Dogs Unleashed is currently in production, and it will premiere sometime this year on the streaming service Unleashed. So, wait. That, there's a new streaming service called Unleashed. That's all I'm taking from this. <laughs> yeah, I had what? never heard of that streaming service either. So yeah, we'll have to check that out. I can't do another service. I don't know what else will be on there. I'm not going to watch the dog show, what? but <laughs> I can't. What They're going to put like one real world New Orleans thing like they've done with Definitely. Paramount and I'm going to subscribe to it. <laughs> Definitely. They'll get you with something for sure. Ugh. But make no mistake, bounty hunting isn't something that's just made for TV. It is a real job that comes with real risk and honestly, not that much reward from what I read and learned about this week. They make about $50,000 a year on average. And of course, they're dealing with people who don't want to go to jail. So it's not like these people are happy when the bounty hunter shows up. Laws regulating the career of bounty hunting have evolved and changed over the years. But in Arizona in 1997, which is where and when our story this week takes place, There was no definition about who could be a bounty hunter, and there were no laws regulating them either. According to the Associated Press, bounty hunters at that time were largely unregulated because they were enforcing a bail bond contract, not actually enforcing the law. So a person who signs a bail bond contract, you know, they agree that they're going to be subject to seizure by an agent of the bail bondsman if they flee, which is a wonderful thing to sign, you know, like, yes, until it actually happens, until they actually right, show right, up. Right. And yeah, in theory, you. totally good. Right. Bounty hunters didn't have to be licensed at that time. They didn't have to pass background checks or undergo any training. And they didn't need any kind of a warrant to enter a house or they didn't have to notify law enforcement of their intentions either, which is crazy to Wild. me. Yes. Yeah. Bounty hunters at this time could even break into a house if they believed that a fugitive was inside. However, they could also be sued or face criminal charges if they were wrong about that. Because there were basically no requirements for becoming a bounty hunter, the field attracted kind of a lot of these, you know, fly-by-night types who just wanted to make a quick buck. They really were not legitimate in any way. They didn't go through classes or training. It was kind of just like a free-for-all like the Wild West. Being intruded on while you're asleep is probably one of the scariest thoughts imaginable. For me personally, it is like your version of water. That's me. I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm immediately like somebody's in my house. Just you cannot reason with me. I'm convinced of it. But at around 4 a.m. on August 31st, 1997, that's exactly what happened at an Arizona home occupied by several people. A group of four men broke through the front door of the home with a sledgehammer, wearing all-black military-style clothing, ski masks, and body armor. They were there for one reason and one reason only, to apprehend a bail jumper named Victor Alcantar, who had fled California and had a $25,000 bench warrant for a 1992 charge of failure to appear in court for a DUI. Once the men gained entry into the home, they made their way to a room where a woman named Louisa and her two girls, aged 12 and 6, were asleep, and they tied them all up, holding them at gunpoint. At some point, Louisa's 11-year-old son was brought in from another room, and then one of the men with a gun held them all inside. I'm skipping to the chase. The kids are fine. We don't do stories where yes. kids get injured, hurt, so let me just get that out of the way. So the other men quickly moved on to the other bedroom where 23-year-old Chris Foote and his 19-year-old girlfriend Spring Wright were sleeping. But moments later, chaos erupted. Chris Foote sprung out of bed, understandably startled and terrified at the sight of these three men with guns standing in his doorway. He quickly reaches for his 9mm handgun and points it at the men, firing all the rounds from the clip and striking two of the intruders in their arms. In response, these two intruders who had been shot also pulled their weapons and fired back. A lot of times. 
there were actually 29 bullet holes found in the wall behind Chris and Spring's bed and leading out into the hallway. Chris and Spring had tragically both been shot to death. Immediately after this shooting, all four of the masked men fled the house in a Dodge Dakota that was being driven by a fifth person, the getaway driver, who had been sitting outside listening to a police scanner when the men came rushing back saying a couple of them had been shot. The driver took the two injured men to a nearby hospital, and the other men went and hid all their gear and cleaned up blood from inside the truck. At the hospital, the two men, named David Brackney and Michael Sanders, told the staff that they had been attempting to apprehend a bail jumper with three other bounty hunters when they were shot. I can't imagine being at the emergency room on staff and just hearing this. Like, what a wild and crazy night in the ER to have these guys showing up and, you know, and they've been shot and they're talking about bounty hunting. Like, that, I feel like, doesn't happen every night at the hospital. Honestly, from what our friend Kim with People Are Wild uh, says, it sounds like it could be an average day in the <laughs> ER. <laughs> Maybe um, <laughs> <laughs> A funny story, uh, our friend Kim, one, I can't remember what she was doing, a marathon or something, and I sent her a cameo from baby Lissa, who is the daughter of Dwayne uh, Chapman, bounty hunter. Nice. She was a big fan a long time ago, yeah. <laughs> Full circle. Nice. So officers arrived to speak with David and Michael, who repeated the same story that they had given to the hospital staff. They said the other three bounty hunters were named Matthew Brackney, Ronald Timms, and Brian Robbins. According to their story, they had gone to the Foothouse to capture Victor Alcantar, and they produced this paperwork proving that they had been hired by a California bail bonds company for this purpose. According to Michael, the team screwed up and didn't secure the house properly, which led to this horrible incident. As for David, he said that in his 250 captures, this was the first time anything had ever gone wrong or ended badly. David Brackney was a firearms training expert at the Federal Correctional Institution, which is a prison north of Phoenix. He had worked there for 18 years and had no criminal record. He occasionally worked with Michael Sanders on bounty hunts, and David's son Matthew came along at times as well. Matthew was just 20 years old, and his regular job was delivering auto parts. Brian Robbins and Ron Timms were both men in their late 20s. Brian had been a bounty hunter since 1993 and was married to Michael Sanders' sister. So there really isn't a lot of information about who Ronald Timms was. Uh, Most of the newspapers couldn't even figure out his exact age, uh, so we don't have a lot of information on him other than the fact that he was there. The ringleader in all of this, though, was Michael Sanders. In addition to bounty hunting, 40-year-old Michael had also been a police informant since 1986, and he worked for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, as well as the FBI, the DEA, and the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office. He earned a nice little chunk of change for being an informant, making about $20,000 for information that he gave to police in 1986 and 1987 alone, which would be about $50,000 today. Not too shabby for snitching, I have to say. (laughs) Maybe snitches don't get stitches. Exactly. They get dollar bills, y'all. <laughs> yeah. But although Michael was a police informant and a bounty hunter, he wasn't exactly the most upstanding person himself. In 1978, Michael was convicted in Texas of unlawfully carrying a weapon. And in 1981, he was fired from his job as a jailer in Odessa, Texas, after he helped an inmate escape just one month into starting his job there. He also helped plot the murder of two undercover agents. What? How are you on the streets at all? I don't even get it. Yeah. No. So after his termination, Michael threatens the internal investigator that's actually working on his case. 
1982, Michael was charged with conspiracy to commit first-degree murder and retaliation against a witness, but he ended up only getting convicted of retaliation, and he was sentenced to two years. In 1986, Michael moved to Arizona. That same year, he went to the Phoenix police with information on a crime syndicate he worked for. According to the Arizona Republic, the syndicate, quote, plotted contract killings, dealt drugs, and committed burglaries, end quote. The case didn't go anywhere, but the Phoenix police continued working with Michael for years. And Michael continued to break the law while acting as an informant. All the law enforcement agencies he worked for protected him by covering up his crimes. For example, Michael was known to violate his parole by carrying weapons. One time, a federal probation officer had been shown a video of Michael armed with a handgun. The probation officer motioned for a hearing to revoke Michael's parole, but then a Phoenix officer testified that Michael was a star witness who helped solve a big robbery case. Based on the police officer's testimony, the judge denied the probation officer's request to revoke parole, then terminated Michael's parole altogether, which actually set him free. This is wild to me. Criminal informants, the things that they can, I I mean, obviously it's, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Um, for that kind of relationship, but it's wild what this guy was getting away with. Yeah. So in 1990, Michael was working as a bounty hunter when he attacked a man named Daniel Crawford in his own home. Daniel told the Republic that Michael, quote, shoved open the front door, held a chemical spray to his face, and announced that he came to arrest Daniel's father, end quote. Michael was arrested for suspicion of aggravated assault and breaking and entering, but the Arizona Attorney General's office never filed charges. A few years later, in 1994, Michael was involved in a shooting death while acting as a bounty hunter in Tucson. But we actually couldn't find any other information on this, so he must not have been charged with anything at that time. Hmm. My goodness, this guy now, like, just him being a bounty hunter is absolutely wild. He's just literally wilding out everywhere. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And we still have so much more to get into this story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Food allergies are something super personal to me. When my son was born, we very quickly learned he had an egg allergy, and then I held my breath the first time he tried peanut butter at 12 months old, and I remember seeing the hives form around his mouth. Food allergies really changed our lives. It changed what we could do, where we could go, and what we could eat. We carry around EpiPens and Benadryl and are always on alert. And a lot of you either have kids with food allergies or maybe your kids' friends have them. In fact, 1 in 12 babies will develop food allergies this year. But it doesn't have to be that way. Now, thanks to evidence-based research, USDA guidelines, pediatricians, and allergists all agree that feeding babies small amounts of these common food allergens, like peanuts and eggs, consistently for six months or more, starting at four months of age, can actually prevent severe allergies from developing by up to 80%. But how do you know when to introduce it, or even how to? Ready, Set Food has you covered. Ready Set Food was developed by an allergist and mom of two to make a way to introduce these foods to babies in a safe and easy way, starting with low doses of the most common food allergens like peanut, egg, and milk, starting right from the bottle. The result is giving parents a gently guided system of products that helps take out the mess and the stress of introducing new allergens. And while this can't help my son with his food allergies, if I'm invited to your baby shower, you had better believe I'm showing up with Ready Set Food for you and your new bundle of joy. Head over to readysetfood.com slash momsandmurder and use code momsandmurder for 15% off your first order of Ready Set Food and give your child the best chance to avoid developing a severe food allergy. 
With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about this guy, Michael Sanders, who has been involved in bounty hunting for quite some time. But as we have started to kind of unpeel, you know, unpack all these layers here, we're finding out that Michael has a little bit of a criminal history himself and has been involved in some things that are a little bit questionable. In 1994, Michael was involved in something a little more serious. He became a suspect in a robbery homicide that took place on November 28, 1994, which was the first business day back after the Thanksgiving and Black Friday weekend. The details of that case went like this. In the evening hours, a Wells Fargo van with its motor running was found abandoned in a church parking lot in Sun City, Arizona. Inside, the body of the driver, 61-year-old John Magock, was found inside. He had been shot in the head. All of the money, which was $565,000, was missing from this Wells Fargo van. According to a Wells Fargo courier who had been working with John that day, they had parked the van outside of Arrowhead Town Center in Glendale for a normal pickup of cash, checks, receipts, and more from Dillard's. The courier ran inside the shopping center, and when he emerged three minutes later, the van was gone, so he called the police. Because there was no sign of forced entry into the van, investigators theorized that John, who had been the one to stay back with the vehicle, had voluntarily stepped away from the van, which was a violation of company policy. Tips and composite drawings led the police to believing that Michael Sanders may have been responsible. And when Michael found out that he was a suspect, he approached homicide detective Tom Clayton and said that he wanted to make a deal. Tell me you're guilty without telling me you're guilty. Why would you approach a homicide detective and say you want to make a deal? If like, I feel like you're just I mean, admitting <laughs> that you did something, right? Right. They, they're not approaching him. He's approaching them. But at the same time, this guy's been an informant. He's like, I know that if I want to get this off of me, I can give them other information. And they work with him. Like, True. for years, it, they've been working with this guy. Of course he would do this. Right. Not me. Yeah. So his deal was that he promised to tell them who was really responsible for the Wells Fargo robbery if they would promise him immunity for another robbery that had taken place back in December of 1993. Apparently, Michael had stolen about $80,000 in cash and $80,000 in checks in that robbery, and he had help from two accomplices. Michael told the detective that no one had been hurt in that particular robbery and that they were nice to the victims. I mean, then right there, give him another $80,000 check and just send him on his way. No kidding. After telling the officers about this, he went on to tell them about what happened with this Wells Fargo robbery that left a man dead. He said that he did help to plan the whole thing along with another police informant named Timothy Ring, which why are all these police informants like actually committing crimes? Like that just seems so out there to me. Well, it almost feels like they had a pass. I don't know that that's how criminal informants work now. Could be wrong. Haven't been one. Um, kind of interested just to break one law and see if I can get away with it. No, I don't. Why no. am I saying this? <laughs> this is too late at night. We can't do this. I know. Just continue. <laughs> <I> know. <laughs> um, so also uh, involved in this whole scheme was a prison worker named James Greenham and a former Phoenix police officer named William Ferguson. 
Michael said that although he did help, you know, with this plan, he didn't actually have anything to do with the murder of anybody. And he wasn't even physically there for the robbery. All he did was help them plan it. As for the other suspects, Timothy was another police informant that worked at the same prison as David Brackney. And so they became friends. And David is who introduced Timothy to Michael Sanders in the first place. And so from there, Timothy started going on these bounty hunts with them. James, as we said, was also a prison employee. And William Ferguson had retired from the Phoenix PD on January 1st, 1993. But this wasn't exactly a happy retirement moment. He was actually at risk for being fired for unsatisfactory personal conduct. No details were released about exactly what he did um, in his personal life. But uh, he was evidently in trouble quite a bit throughout his career as a police officer. And my gosh, how bad does it have to be for them to actually arrest right. one of these guys? Like, Or for him to have even not had a great retirement? It's like, what did you do? Right. How many people did you set on fire in front of 50 witnesses? These people were getting away with literal so murder. Much. Yeah. So in February of 1995, Timothy, James, and William were arrested for the Wells Fargo robbery homicide. When investigators spoke with James, he said that Michael was an accomplice, but not Timothy. So James later changed his story to say that he, William, and Timothy met at Timothy's house before the robbery, and then they drove to the shopping center. When John stepped out of the Wells Fargo van to take a smoke break, Timothy, who was an expert marksman, shot him in the head. James then ran to the van, pushed John inside, jumped in, and then started driving. Timothy and William met James at the church parking lot, where they put the monies into bags and they fled. Days later, they met up at William's mother's house and divided up the money. Timothy said that he was innocent, that he was being framed by Michael. He said he didn't know anything about the Wells Fargo robbery. He hadn't been a part of the planning or of the actual robbery. Timothy swore that he and William Ferguson were trying to get their truck out of a ditch 70 miles away near Four Peaks when the robbery actually occurred. Investigators told Timothy that they found $271,000 in his garage. He said he had an explanation for that. Michael and James planned to steal the money with the Wells Fargo driver, John Magic. The plan was for Michael to wound John so he'd appear as a victim. But Michael decided to kill John and take his share of the money. James then took his share and on Michael's suggestion, he hid the money in Timothy's garage because nobody would suspect him since he was an FBI informant. If I learned anything from this story, it's to always suspect the informants. Right. Uh, basically. <laughs> so that does not seem like a great idea. So it's unclear what William's story about the murder was, but considering he later pleaded guilty, we assume that James's story was truthful. In December of 1998, William pleaded no contest to second-degree murder and armed robbery. He said that he deeply regretted taking part in the robbery and murder, and William was sentenced to 26 years. In October of 1995, James pleaded guilty to the robbery and murder of John. Instead of facing the death penalty, he was sentenced to life without parole for 25 years. In October of 1997, a judge sentenced Timothy to death for the robbery and murder. The prosecution had argued that Timothy was the ringleader of this whole robbery and he was the murderer. According to Timothy's defense, during his trial, the prosecution withheld information about Michael's criminal history from the defense. For example, they denied ever hiring Michael as an informant. Also, FBI agents actually gave false statements while testifying about Michael at Timothy's trial. For example, according to the Arizona Republic, 
Michael's FBI handler testified Michael's file was only 16 pages, while a supervisor in the office said that he read the file and it was more than two inches thick. So in 2002, Timothy's death sentence was overturned after the Supreme Court ruled that judges alone cannot decide if a defendant should be sentenced to death. He was then resentenced to life without parole. So that's all the background information on the men who were involved in this bounty hunt that went awry and left 23-year-old Chris Foote and 19-year-old Spring Wright dead. On September 1st, Michael, Matthew, and David were all arrested, with Brian and Ronald being arrested a couple of days later. The men were all charged with second-degree murder, aggravated assault, and unlawful imprisonment. What wasn't immediately clear, though, was why these bounty hunters were at the foothouse at all, much less breaking through the door. Although the men had produced documents showing that they were there trying to apprehend a bail jumper named Victor, officers had actually found out that Victor was no longer even wanted as of March 1992. So the bond for him didn't even exist at all. As it turned out, the real Victor that they were looking for never even lived in Arizona. It was also revealed that the bail bonds agency in California, where Michael claimed to have gotten this assignment, said that they never hired Michael or any of the other men. Matthew said that Michael told the men that the people living in the foothouse were involved in drug dealing or gangs or both. So Matthew said that all five of these men were kind of pressed for money, and so they rushed into this bail pickup. A few days before this raid, Matthew and David drove by and checked out the foothouse. And then on the day of, they all held one last meeting at Matthew and David's house where they studied a diagram of the interior of the foothouse. Once they were inside, though, everything went wrong due to what they said was poor planning and bad intelligence or tips. For example, nothing matched the blueprint that they had learned. So that threw them all off once they got inside. But still, what reason did they have to be at that address when there was no evidence that the person they were allegedly looking for had ever even lived there? They essentially just broke into some random people's house and shot them to death. So the police believe that Michael had fired 18 shots from his 223 caliber AR-15 assault rifle, and he was responsible for killing Chris and most likely Spring. Following the arrests, Maricopa County attorney Rick Romley told the public, Quote, calling yourself a bounty hunter does not give you a license to kill. On September 1st, Phoenix police spokesman Michael Torres told the media that it was a mystery why the bounty hunters broke into the home of Chris and Spring. He said, quote, there is nothing to indicate that the person they were looking for was at that house, end quote. According to relatives, Victor never lived in this house and Chris and Spring didn't even know who he was. The Foote family had lived in this house for 13 years. It seems like very basic... Well, I shouldn't say detective work, but like bounty huntering work <laughs> right? would say like, okay, these people have lived here 13 years. What is their connection? You know. But and wouldn't you like physically lay eyes on the person you're looking for to confirm that they even live there? Like if you're putting in all this work, why aren't you hanging out and just watching the house and seeing like, oh, there's our Surveil guy, it. Victor. Like there he is, you know. And it's just crazy to me that they went in blind into this house, not even knowing if this person was inside. And yeah, they encountered uh, some people who live there that were trying to defend themselves. Like this whole story is so just terrifying to me because like you said, being intruded on in the middle of the night is like truly one of the most horrifying scenarios, you know, that you can even think of. Just to think that these men had no business being at this house. It's just infuriating. Oh, absolutely. 
So on September 5th, a 25-year-old veteran of bounty hunting told the Arizona Republic that the five bounty hunter story seemed fishy to him from the start. I would agree. He, quote, questioned why the bounty hunters didn't tell police what they were doing and why they wore ski masks and body armor, end quote. Also, why were they fleeing after they shot someone? That really shows that they knew what had happened was wrong. They knew things went wrong. Otherwise, they would say, hey, here's what happened. Call police, call 911, get these people help. You know, something went wrong instead of like running away, literally had a getaway car. So anyway, other bounty hunters had similar questions. And one even said that they thought it was a home invasion robbery that was masked as being a bounty capture. However, the police refused to admit that the murders were clearly not a bounty hunt gone wrong. For days, they continued to tell the media that there was absolutely nothing pointing to a home invasion and that all evidence pointed to a bounty hunt gone wrong. This really angered the bounty hunters who were worried that the public would look at them as people who could murder whoever they wanted. One bounty hunter told the Arizona Republic that the, quote, actions of the five men were not routine bounty hunter practices, end quote. Police knew that, but they were, quote, protecting the men because Michael Sanders spent many years as a snitch for law enforcement agencies, end quote. At some point, it would be like, why are we still defending this guy? Is he really helping us that much? It feels like he's shooting them in the foot all the time, like every time they turn around. There has to be other snitches. Maricopa County Attorney Rick Ronley said Michael was a scuzzball, which is I love a that word. word. <laughs> like, I'd like to use that more. I love that. <laughs> Who hadn't worked for the prosecution since 1988 when Ronley was elected. Convenient. Many others were also worried that law enforcement was continuing to protect Michael. They thought he would once again get away with murder. And they definitely had reason to worry. It looked like authorities were once again protecting Michael. For example, authorities obtained search warrants for the homes and cars of Ronald, David, and Matthew, but not Michael or Brian, who had also been a suspect in the Wells Fargo robbery homicide, though we're not actually sure what led to him being a suspect. So when their houses and cars were raided, authorities found guns and ammo, $590 in cash, black fatigues, plastic handcuffs, a walkie-talkie with an earpiece, and more. Matthew had actually been the driver of the Dodge Dakota that night. Inside the truck, investigators found blood and the sledgehammer used to knock down the foot front door. On the dashboard, they found the old bail papers for Victor Alcantar. I think it's funny that they had plastic handcuffs because there's only a couple of reasons why you would have plastic handcuffs. So I know. They're both I feel funny like they to went think to about. A like, very did you different steal store. your kid's Halloween costume handcuffs or oh, <laughs> something else? <laughs> I went to a different thing there. Oh, I, was, I was going there too. But, but yeah, there's only Either so way, it was many. a different store yeah. than where you got the other stuff right. from. Yeah. So on September the 12th, Ronald and David's attorneys told the media that both men truly believed they were on a legitimate bounty hunt. Ronald's attorney said, quote, My client believed there was a valid California warrant, and this person was a fugitive, and they were picking up the person named in that warrant. He saw paperwork that supported that, end quote. Plus, Michael had told the men that he had already positively identified Victor inside the house that Chris and Spring lived in. So as I said, like, why wouldn't you, like, you know, physically lay eyes on this person? Well, I guess he um, just lied and said that he did and didn't Mm. actually do that. David's attorney added that the bounty hunters announced their presence before they entered the house, saying, quote, there was a very clear warning to Chris to drop his gun and show his hands. The fight ensued because David and Michael were fired upon first, end quote. On September 13th, attorney Rick Ronley announced that authorities no longer believe that the murders had been a bounty hunt gone wrong. 
He said that the men had carried out the bounty paperwork um, for Victor as a way to legitimize their real mission, which was just a home invasion robbery. The prosecution said that while the murders of Chris and Spring weren't premeditated, they were still first-degree murder because they occurred in the commission of a felony, which was the robbery. All of the five men's charges were then upgraded to first-degree murder. The bounty hunter community was really relieved um, to see that these men were being you know, charged with, with something so, as severe as what it was. Yeah. On December the 23rd, authorities announced that based on a tip, they now believe that the group of five men had actually raided the foothouse to steal money or drugs or both. The tip came from a friend of Ronald's, and the friend wasn't actually named in any of the police documents, so we're just going to call him Steve to keep things nice and simple. Um, but he said that around a week before the murders, Ronald asked him if he knew anyone who was a, quote, big drug dealer. And Steve said that he'd gone to a house, which was the foot house, two times before in hopes of buying meth, but he never ended up buying any because Chris and Spring, you know, kind of freaked out and then said that they didn't have anything to sell. Steve said that although he never actually bought any drugs there, he thought the people who lived in the foot house were big drug dealers who kept their drugs in one of the back rooms. Ronald and Michael then wanted to know about the interior of the house and where they kept the guns, and a description of these so-called drug dealers. They said that they wanted this information so that they could make some money, and they were hoping to make around $20,000. After Steve showed Ronald and Michael where the foothouse was, Ronald changed his story about why they wanted info on the house. Now he said that they were going to, quote, serve a bond on the house. Steve was confused because Ronald had never even talked about a bond in their previous discussions about this particular house. Steve told the police that after the murders, Ronald actually called him and said that the plan had gone wrong. Steve went to Ronald's place, and Ronald showed him a duffel bag and said that it was full of bloody clothes. Ronald said that he actually had to cut off Michael's shirt because, you know, he'd been shot at kind of when things really hit the fan and started going, going terribly wrong in this uh, yeah. scenario. And we are going to get into the rest of the story after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. There's something about solving a mystery that intrigues us all. Whether it's finding the scissors in the scissor drawer that your kids absolutely couldn't find, or contemplating the mysteries of life. With June's Journey, you can take on a mystery with much lower stakes. When you play June's Journey, you'll get to star as June Parker, the effortlessly cool and genius amateur detective. And you'll investigate a series of mysteries where you'll find twists and turns behind each corner. As moms, our observation skills are always being put to the test. And thanks to that, now's your chance to shine while playing June's Journey. For me, June's journey is all about taking a break from real life and immersing myself into June's much more glamorous life. The game is set in the roaring 20s, and while I'm in Chapter 3, I never have to worry about running out of things to play on June's journey because new chapters are added all the time. So whether you're playing while you should be doing laundry like me or enjoying it during commercials of Dateline, June's journey is sure to dazzle you with its beautiful graphics and variety of mysteries for you to solve. There's a detective in all of us. Find your inner detective. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Knowing that if you got rid of all the subscriptions that you don't need or you forgot about could actually save you hundreds of dollars is very different than going through all the trouble to actually remember, find, and cancel them. That's why you need Truebill. 
Truebill makes it easy to get rid of those subscriptions that you signed up for, used for a day, and then forgot to cancel. And if you think you aren't signed up for that many subscriptions, think again. On average, Truebill helps save people $720 a year. With savings like that, you could use the money towards something you really want, like as many Diet Cokes as McDonald's can give you before they actually learn your name. True story. If you aren't familiar with Truebill, allow us to explain. Truebill is the new app that helps you identify and stop paying for those subscriptions that you don't really need, want, or those that you simply just forgot about. Companies make canceling subscriptions hard, but Truebill makes it incredibly simple. All you have to do is link your accounts and Truebill will cancel your unwanted subscriptions in one tap. Truebill also provides you with their concierge, who is there when you need them to cancel those unwanted subscriptions so that you don't have to. For example, I was paying $15 a month for SiriusXM, and then I realized I only listen to podcasts in my car. Since Sirius makes you actually call in to cancel your subscription, I gave Truebill a little information and they were able to call and cancel it for me, taking one more thing off my list of things to do, plus saving me about $200 a year. And don't just take our word for it. Take other real users like Jeb D, who says, I've saved at least $1,000 and the Truebill team does all the work. I have an alarming number of subscriptions. Truebill gives me complete visibility and power over all of it. Don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today at Truebill.com slash moms. Go right now. Truebill.com slash moms. It could save you thousands a year. Truebill.com slash moms. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about this friend of Ronald's who we're calling Steve because we don't have his real name and the information he was given to authorities. And so in addition to Steve's tip, authorities also received the toxicology reports from Chris and Spring. And while Spring was found to have no drugs in her system, methamphetamine was found in Chris's blood. However, no drugs or large amounts of cash were found inside the house. 
While family and friends had previously denied that the couple used drugs, after the results were released, family and friends admitted that the couple had struggled with drug abuse in the past, but they were working on getting better. Spring's mother said Spring had been sober for around a year. All relatives said neither Spring nor Chris were drug dealers. Ronald Timms later admitted to police that the men had planned to break into Chris and Spring's home because they mistakenly believed that there would be a large amount of drugs and cash inside. When it came time to enter their pleas, three of the men, Ronald, Matthew, and Brian, took plea deals. Ronald pleaded guilty to lesser charges in exchange for his testimony against Michael. On September 15, 1998, he pleaded guilty to two counts of second-degree murder and one count of second-degree burglary. His sentencing was set up for after Michael Sanders' trial. Ronald ended up being sentenced to 16 years for two counts of second-degree murder and 10 and a half for one count of second-degree burglary. Matthew Bragney pleaded guilty to aggravated assault and burglary and was sentenced to 10 years. Brian Robbins also pleaded guilty to two counts of second-degree murder and one count of first-degree burglary. He was sentenced to 22 years for two counts of second-degree murder and 21 years for one count of first-degree burglary. Both Michael Sanders and David Brackney went to trial for the murders. Jury selection for Michael's trial began on September 16, 1998. Prosecutors said that Michael was the ringleader of the group and that he was one of the men who fired the fatal shots. They also said that the men had gone to the Foothouse specifically to rob them of drugs and money, not to capture anyone for a bounty. Michael's defense said that he and the other men were on, you know, a real bounty capture, and it just went terribly wrong, and that Michael only fired in self-defense after being shot at first. They said that it was Ronald who had this idea to rob Chris and Spring, and that everyone else believed they were on a bounty capture. So the men actually said that it was Ronald who had the idea to rob Chris and Spring and that everybody else believed, you know, they were on this bounty capture. On October 30th, 1998, the jury found Michael guilty of two counts of first-degree murder, four counts of aggravated assault, and one count of first-degree burglary. On August 25th, 1999, Michael's sentencing hearing was held, and he maintained his innocence, saying that he told Chris several times to show his hands and put the gun down. When Chris started shooting, Michael dropped to the floor, and Michael said, quote, I was flat on my back, and then, and only then, did I return fire, end quote. He said that he didn't know Spring had been next to Chris until he was at the hospital getting treated for his wounds. He said that it felt like a punch in the gut, and he was absolutely devastated, you know, when he found out that he had killed these two people. But he did not apologize to any family members during his hearing. Although he faced the death penalty, the judge chose to sentence Michael to life without the possibility of parole. The judge believed that while Michael didn't go to the house with the intent to kill, he should still never, quote, set foot in the free world again because he was really devoid of, you know, any moral conscience and he just lacked this ability really to be a law-abiding citizen. That was kind Finally. of- Finally. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of where the judge was just like, yeah, I don't know about this guy. You know, he's been, he's been into some sticky situations before. So according to the Arizona Republic, during the sentencing hearing, Michael, quote, smiled and whispered frequently to his attorney. Apparently, he'd been having a sexual relationship uh, with his attorney during and after his trial. Uh, they actually had been caught kissing and touching each other um, in visiting rooms, which is so like, Please, oh, my gosh. No, I watched <laughs> enough Love After Lockup to know what's happening. And yeah. I'm not, I don't want to hear this. Yeah. 
So this is actually interesting. So the attorney that we're talking about here is named Carmen Fisher. And maybe that doesn't sound familiar to you, not like we've talked about her many times, but we actually have talked about this uh, attorney on a previous episode. It was the uh, murder of Mary Lynn Carlson. And that was an episode we did back in uh, almost a year ago, actually, back in May of 2021. Yeah. Um, but Carmen was the defense attorney for Doris Carlson, who murdered Mary Lynn. And at the time of Doris's trial, Carmen was under public scrutiny for this relationship that she was having with her other client, Michael Sanders. So it's kind of crazy how sometimes, you know, stories are kind of connected and have these weird, like, I don't know. It's kind of weird to like revisit like a case that we've talked yeah. about before and see how, you know, that attorney was, you know, this was a this, involved in something else. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. David Brackney's trial began in early 2000. The prosecution and defense were pretty much the same as they were in Michael's trial. The men went to the foot house with the intention of robbing them, not capturing a bail jumper. After Chris fired his gun and struck both David and Michael, the two men returned fire. On February 8th, 2000, a jury found David guilty on two counts of first-degree murder, three counts of aggravated assault, four counts of unlawful imprisonment, and one count of first-degree burglary. On March 27th, 2000, David was sentenced to life without parole. According to the Associated Press, at sentencing, David said that despite earlier questions about his remorse, he wanted to make it clear that he was extremely sorry. He said, quote, if I could turn back the clock and go back, I would, but I'm ready to pay the penalty for what happened, end quote. And the judge said he didn't believe David. So good try, buddy. So David Brackney is serving his life sentence in the same prison and unit as Michael, Lewis State Prison in Buckeye, Arizona. He's also been deemed a low security risk. Matthew Brackney and Ronald Timms have both been released on parole, and Brian Robbins is currently incarcerated at the high-security Douglas State Prison in Douglas, Arizona. His projected release date is June 15, 2037. So the day after Chris and Spring were murdered, Chris's parents started getting signatures on petitions calling for tighter regulations on bounty hunters. According to the Arizona Republic, two days after the murders, State Senator John Cates called for a, quote, crackdown on bounty hunters, end quote. Cates said that he'd draft legislation requiring bounty hunters to notify police before searching occupied structures. This legislation would also require bounty hunters to pass background checks and obtain permits. At least three other politicians said they were interested in developing the legislation. So the bounty hunter community supported the legislative efforts. One told the Arizona Republic, quote, we want to get these wannabe fly-by-night bounty hunters out of the country, end quote. In 1998, Arizona changed the bounty hunter laws to require bounty hunters to have no felony convictions and be registered, not licensed, with the Department of Insurance. According to Bounty Hunter Education, bounty hunters, quote, cannot enter private residences without the owner's consent. They cannot tender an arrest without a bail bondsman's written authorization. They may not wear any markings, clothing, emblems, or badges that mark themselves as agents of the state or officers of the law. They cannot identify themselves as anything but a bail recovery agent, nor can they conduct their duties if they have a felony conviction involving a deadly weapon, end quote. That's a lot of words. Yeah. Um, well, I'm glad that they have rules now. <laughs> I mean, I think those are some totally. good rules. So this reminds me of um, a little bit criminal conduct season two, maybe. There was constables. Like in Kentucky, they still have constables, which are basically – they're not police officers, but it's kind of the same idea where these people have a gun and can go out and like – I shouldn't say arrest people. They were like pulling people over for drugs, like getting – saying they have drugs going, arresting them, finding money, all this stuff like 
but they're not actually police officers. Similarly to this, where these people are just going in and going into private residences, this guy never lived there. So their plan was actually not the dumbest plan I've ever heard of to say, hey, we're doing this because at the time it wasn't against the law for them right. to do that. Yeah. It was if if these two had not been killed, who knows how many more times they would have done this because they would have just gotten away with it because, you know, it's very easy for them to say, oh, well, we thought we were getting somebody jumping bail. Wild. So I'm very glad yeah. that the laws have changed with that. But man. Yeah. Yeah, I do think it's a little crazy. I am. Um, I said. I think I said to you before we started recording that you know the the whole concept of bounty hunting to me is like I, I understand why they have people to do that because obviously the state doesn't have um, the manpower to just be hunting down like these people who have skipped bail. They have other you know more pressing issues they need to be working sure. on. So it does make sense, but I. I don't know. For it to just be private citizens that can just say, like, I want to go into this field of work and apprehend criminals, like, I, I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know if I feel like it should be a thing. Yeah, I agree with you. It's it it's a fine line, and I don't know exactly where I fall in it. I think they definitely serve a purpose, and people need to know if you jump bail, somebody's coming for you. Right. But how much training should that person have? Because I'm assuming these are bail bondsmen are working for private companies, right? Uh, private bail, right. bail companies, so it wouldn't be the police that are really helping them. I don't know. We should look into this more. All right, Mandy, are you ready to move on? I am ready. Oh, actually, you do that. Sorry. <laughs> Melissa, are you ready to turn the page? <laughs> I am. Okay, so Mandy, I sometimes I have an idea and then I sometimes. think this makes sense. <laughs> and then <laughs> and then I go to present it and I think, oh, how did I get here? <laughs> okay. So follow me here, guys. For last thing before we go this week, we talked a little about or we talked a lot about bounty hunting. One in particular, Dog the Bounty Hunter, which made me think of dog, which made me think of dogs in movies and TV shows. Mandy, I am going to send you pictures <laughs> of dogs yay. in various TV shows and movies. See, I thought you would like that part. Oh, yay. Um, and either tell me the name of the movie or show or the um the name of the animal. I you, okay. I will let you choose. And um and just feel free to describe who it is. I'm gonna shoot uh, an easy one for you to start off because I know you'll be excited about this one. Mandy, who did I send you? That's Toto. From what that's, movie? That's Mandy? from my favorite movie ever, The Wizard of Oz. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Okay, so they're going to get a little harder. Mandy, who is this? Um, it's a little baby with a dog. Um, Do you know that's – what's his name? Oh, wait. You know that, the show? It's the Rugrats. Okay. What's the dog's name? I don't know the dog's name. I think you could get it. Um, Starts with an S, ends with a pike. Oh, it's Spike. Yeah, Spike. I miss the Rugrats. I know. My daughter's watched it, and I'm like, isn't it a great show? <laughs> and she said yes, and it was like we connected for a minute, and then she got mad about something. So. Except looking at um, this picture that you just sent me, uh, and what's the baby's name? Um... Oh, okay. Phil and Lil. Then there's Chucky. And then his name is Tommy. Tommy. Tommy Pickles. Yes. Tommy Pickles. I love the Rugrats, but looking at this um, image you sent me, it's crazy because when I was a kid, I do not remember the cartoon being this basic looking. 
Oh, it's very basic. Yeah, we we didn't have Pixar back then. <laughs> no. Speaking of Pixar, Mandy, here's your next one. That's the dog from Up, but I don't yes. know its name because I didn't really watch that movie. Yeah, I don't remember it. Everybody said it would make you cry, and so I watched the part that would make you cry, and I didn't cry, and I was like, "Well, I don't really watch it." <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. I do that too when people say like a movie really got to them, I'm like, and then I watch it, and it doesn't have any effect on me. I'm like. Maybe I'm worse off than I thought. <laughs> yeah. Like, I thought it was okay, but all right. Um, if you change the O in dog to a U, it would be? Doug. Yeah, that's Doug. Um, okay, I'm going to give you two more. These are my favorite. Okay, let's see if you know this one. And I'll put these on Instagram because um, I just think they're fun to Oh, wait. At. That's this is a dog in a basketball jersey. Yes. Okay, this is Air Bud, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Probably doesn't surprise you that my my littlest one likes that because he's really into basketball and he likes dogs. I love it. (laughs) Very very on brand. Do you know his name? I don't. Okay. It's Buddy. Oh, yeah. And then here's the most nostalgic one for me. And I am just curious. I don't know if we've talked about if you've ever watched this show. And I don't know that this picture is great. Um, Um, Wait, is this from – wait, why do I feel like this is – You're going to get it. I don't know. Is this dog I believe in you. Full House. <laughs> yes, is it, it is. No way. Good job. Yeah, it's the dog from Full House. Do you remember his name? No. His name is Comet. But great Aww. job, Mandy. I honestly don't know he, how I even got that one. So I, I don't either. That was like wild to me. But the craziest thing is this is the most pop culture-y stuff you've ever gotten because it's animals. I can't believe I really got that at all. You. I know. Isn't that – that's impressive to me. I mean – It is very impressive. There's not – I mean, there's so few things I do that are impressive. So this was really amazing. I actually I think there's a lot you do that are impressive, but – as far as pop culture goes, no. Normally, I'm <laughs> not fully <impressed>. disappointed. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I love those. Yeah, that was great. And a nice way to end things, especially after my horrific dog story in the beginning. Oh, my gosh. Thank- <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh, I'm so glad that everything is okay because here I am you like, had to let's come look up at a thousand some, dogs. Yeah. <laughs> you would have had to come up with like a new <laughs> last thing before we go, like in the middle of while we were recording, like oh thinking up gosh. something else. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, you can't say we have we don't have a theme. We really had one this week. Look at that. We started with one go. and ended with this. It's very cohesive. Amazing. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, that was the episode for this week. We will be back next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.